Predictions are dangerous. We absolutely need more inventory. The Fed doesn't actually have a lot of tools to regulate inflation. That cash has dried up. Wow, is my first thought, Bruce. If both parties don't win, it doesn't happen. The Real Look. Trending News. G'day. Today's Wednesday, July 12th. I'm Bruce Hardy. And I'm Chase Williams. And this is the news you need to know. DigitalMortgageLenderBetter.com disclosed that it posted a net loss of $89.9 million in the first quarter of 2023 and cut approximately 91% of its workforce over an approximate 18-month period, due in large part to a substantial decline in its funded loan volume. In fact, Better.com also spilled red ink in both 2022 and 2021 by the way, two of the best years ever in real estate, reporting a net loss of $888.8 million and $301.1 million, respectively. And that's according to their latest Securities and Exchange Commission filings. So what thinks you of this? Well, for those of you math nerds out there listening, that's a little over $1.2 billion in losses the last two years in the first quarter of this year. And as you mentioned, Bruce, a lot of those quarters and years were some of the best we'd seen in both real estate and mortgage. So that's interesting. But going back to the story at hand here, Better.com has just been getting hammered, right? Not just from a profit loss standpoint, we just shared that, from a job loss and eliminating workforce standpoint, you just shared that, but also from a news standpoint. And frankly, Bruce, it's hard to get any traction in the news when this is the kind of information you're reporting. I would say one thing that's a little interesting to me is how far below they are versus what we're seeing happen in the marketplace. Because we've certainly seen the number of units being sold and mortgages being written lower than normal, but not as substantially lower as the dips that they're seeing. And so I'm curious around that. I think a lot of that might have to do with the amount of refinances that they were doing when the rates were super low. But what do you think, Bruce? Why are their dips and losses so much more than even what we're experiencing in the marketplace? Well, you know, they've been on this path and we've reported about better numerous times, right, over the last couple of years. You know, this is a company that was looking to do real estate better than the rest of us. They were in the pursuit of this single platform, single real estate experience. You know, they had gone and purchased a real estate company, were building better real estate where their realtors were employees. They were focused on doing the industry differently than the way it's done. I think what's fascinating is now they've come to this place where their results have been less than the market, to be quite frank. You know, they can blame the market all they want, but at the end of the day, trying to do things differently without having proven that that works is ultimately what has impacted them. In fact, now they've said they're pivoting to where they're actually going to work with other realtors now, which is the traditional model that we've seen. The relationship between lenders and real estate agents has always been this, how do we cooperate with one another? They got rid of their in-house licensed real estate professionals, but they also got rid of their insurance people. So they were building insurance, mortgage, title, real estate, all of that in one go, and it didn't work. I mean, when you think that they have gone from just over 10,400 employees in Q4 of 2021 down to a total of 950 now, I mean, that's a phenomenal drop. And I have to ask the question, what is the culture like inside that organization today? 
I don't know, but I mean, it can't be anything exciting. I feel like it's got to be a little bit of a slog, particularly for those that are still remaining and certainly wondering how long that can last. I mean, you look at their market share down to 0.3%, 67% below their 0.9% of the same quarter of last year. And Bruce, one of the things that they're up against here is they tried to go public via SPAC back in May of 2021. And that has not worked out for them well yet. They've pushed that date back several times. And frankly, if the company that was formed and is merging with them, Aurora, is unable to complete the merger by this new deadline of September 30th of this year, then they'll actually dissolve and redeem those public shares back to those that were considering investing. So that's a little bit of a dark cloud on the horizon of what's already been very, very stormy for better.com here. And as you mentioned, right, pivoting back to operating in a traditional way just goes to show that different is not always, quote unquote, better. Yeah. What's fascinating to me is how quickly some of these businesses can burn through their cash. To me, it doesn't seem easy to go and lose $1.2 billion. I mean, you got to work hard at that. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, man. I find it really fascinating. And by the way, this is not the only company that's burned through that sort of cash. Even these sort of results, this is the 59th largest mortgage lender in the country. So, you know, this is a big business. There are other mortgage companies that also tried this SPAC route, and none of them have succeeded either. So again, fascinating times. Yeah, it is, Bruce. And it illustrates the point, I think, that I talk about this in another webinar that I teach, that building a business is actually relatively easy with the right amount of capital. Building a profitable business <laughs> is so much harder. And of course, that's the goal, I hope, for most of these companies. There's a Grand Canyon gap between building something big, 59th largest mortgage lender, and building something profitable lost $1.2 billion in the last two years plus a quarter. Grand Canyon. In growth, high growth years, right? People say, oh, the old rules, the old economic rules are gone, right? It's now, it's all about growth. But the truth is, is the fundamentals remain. That's why they're fundamentals. All businesses exist to make a profit. And if you're not making a profit, it's not sustainable. Well, in other news, Chase, Starwood Capital Group is nearing an agreement to sell a portfolio of single-family rental homes to Invitation Homes, Inc. Now, the transaction would include roughly 2,000 homes and value the properties at about $400,000 each. For Invitation Homes, the deal further illustrates the return of Wall Street firms to the single-family rental market. This publicly traded company had more than $1.3 billion in unrestricted cash and undrawn credit facilities at the end of March, which could be enough to complete a deal like this without seeking new debt or equity. So what do you think of this, Chase? Well, Bruce, I think it's a vote of confidence, certainly by this company, and as mentioned in the story, Wall Street maybe in general, as to what they're anticipating in values for single-family homes and those homes holding their value both in the near term and in the long term, right? And we've talked a little bit about what's happening with interest rates and the real estate market and low inventory. We have some of that to share as well. But when you think of the value of an asset, Wall Street's pretty focused on buying things that they anticipate will go up in value in the near and long term. And we know that generally speaking, certainly long term, that's the case for real estate. 
Is it surprising? No. Is it a great vote of confidence by this firm and Wall Street in what they're anticipating with these values? Yes, it is. What's interesting to me, Bruce, is that Starwood, who's considering selling these roughly 2,000 homes, reported in a March filing that it recognized a nearly $80 million impairment charge on various single-family rental properties due to an increased probability of a near-term disposition. They bought these homes right before the peak of the market. And of course, now we've seen some of that come off. I think what's interesting here too, in early June, Pretium Partners agreed to buy 4,000 DR Horton rental homes in a $1.5 billion deal. So again, Wall Street sees the opportunity that this is. The challenge for us, we have a dramatic shortage of inventory. There are people who want to buy their own home. I just got back from vacation in Croatia. What I discovered there blew my mind, and that is is that 91% of the population in Croatia own their own home. Wow. 91%. Now, in this country, we're at about 62%. As a real estate industry, we're struggling to get inventory to sell to people. Certainly, Wall Street is taking up a big chunk of it. And again, we talked about this last year, I believe. You know, when you see entire neighborhoods that are just rental neighborhoods, it's a different dynamic than single family homes that are actually owned by their occupants. Yeah, absolutely. It is, Bruce. So much so that there's a lot of incentives for builders and developers and a lot of locales for building homes that are meant to be owned by the end user right? There's oftentimes breaks on permits or requirements for the development if those homes are able to be owned, right? Versus like multifamily, for example, which is never going to be owned by the occupants just by the nature of that construction versus things like townhomes or condos or sometimes things like this. So yeah, there's definitely a need for more available homes for ownership. That is something that the government is often focused on, whether that be local or federal, and something that certainly we advocate for as an industry. Well, Chase, housing inventory finally broke under 2022 levels last week. To give you an idea how different this year is from last year, last week in 2022, active listings grew 30,940 units, while this year they only grew 5,848 units. I mean, that's a phenomenal difference in number. What's going through your mind when you hear those numbers? Well, I think we want to be really intentional about how we share these numbers, Bruce. So that was a a much lower number just for the week as compared to the same week last year. The total number of homes in inventory is actually rising, although it's rising very, very slowly. But I think it's an indication, Bruce, of a lot of sellers feeling locked in by what's happening with interest rates. If you're wanting to sell your home where you have a 2.5% mortgage rate attached to it currently, for example, and you're looking at the homes that you want to buy at a mortgage and a rate of 7%, right? Now, forget just the percentage, just the monthly cost of your mortgage, right? It's something that I think, and a lot of experts agree, that is locking sellers into homes for maybe longer than they would be otherwise. And that really is indicative of this week's numbers, I think. Absolutely. Well, and if you look at it, the high watermark for inventory this year is 472,688 listings available, right? Now, for context, if we look at active listings for this week in 2015, 
we had 1.183 million available homes for sale. I mean, that's dramatically different. You know, you and I have talked about this at length and probably to our listeners ad nauseum about the idea that, you know, winter is coming. We believe we're going to experience a recession. Now, whether we experience a recession as an economy, we are already experiencing that in real estate. And what I mean by that is, yes, we've got houses that are still selling with multiple offers and selling for more than list price. The problem, however, is we're selling 30% less homes than we sold last year. I mean, we have seen one of the most dramatic drops in the number of units selling. I mean, we've got an annualized rate right now of 4.3 million homes this year off of last year, 6.1. That's pretty fascinating times. It's interesting for us as realtors. It really is, Bruce. And it's a, it's a conundrum, if you will. I mean, you think back to some of those numbers you shared, the bottom of the inventory last March, 2022. 240,194 homes available at one point in time. That was the lowest inventory level ever recorded in history. And that was coupled, again, back in March of last year with some of the lowest interest rates ever recorded in history. So you've said this a few times, Bruce, but I think it's worth resharing here is it's almost as if we stole some of the sales of future years like now back in 20 and 21. You know, that is a conundrum for our industry and certainly would bring on what you would think of as a recession, again, in our industry at the very least, because we were feasting on harvests that we haven't even harvested yet. And here we are living on the other side of that, right? Well, it always seems like we're one month away before we see this dramatic drop. And yet last week we had a big move in the 10-year yield because jobless claims came in better than anticipated. And bond traders were caught off guard selling bonds on the news and sending mortgage rates above 7%. So these are fascinating times because unemployment stayed at 3.6%, right? And yet we had more job openings than they were anticipating. And oh, guess what? Now that puts extra pressure on the Fed to actually have to do another rate increase. Because if you look at what's happening, we're stalling out now with our CPI numbers, consumer price index numbers, they've sort of flattened out. We had, as they were doing those rapid drops, and by the way, you think about this, the Fed has increased interest rates at a faster rate than in the history of the United States. I mean, there has to be an impact. Absolutely. I mean, the job reports remaining strong is indicative of up to this point, still an underlying strong economy, which keeps those inflation numbers still higher than we would like. What's interesting, Bruce, a couple things. One is that the purchase applications was actually surprising with three weeks in a row of growth. So additional people putting in purchase applications, even while mortgage rates have now gone back above 7%. So it indicates that the consumer at large is starting to get a little bit more comfortable with, you know, six to seven and maybe slightly above rates because they've been around for a little while now, right? In regards to those job claims, I wanted to mention that there's you know still 10 million job openings, which is really great news for those better.com employees that continue to be laid off, tongue in cheek. The economy is strong. So everyone who wants to be employed is employed, and yet we still need more. Yeah. I mean, GDP is good, right? Unemployment is amazing. And that's what's continuing to drive our economy. And, and the Fed, like you've talked about, right, have very few tools at their disposal to actually get this inflation down. 
the one that they're going to continue to use will be raising rates and the impact on that is going to be dramatic because until we start to see the unemployment rate go up, people won't stop spending money. And, you know, as an economy, you think about it, and this is not a political statement because it was both the Trump administration and the Biden administration all pumped huge amounts of money into the economy. And, oh, by the way, everybody's employed. So that's why we're seeing consumer spending still remain high. And yet what's really, I think, fascinating about this, Chase, is that when you see the Fed raising rates, it affects everybody disproportionately. And what I mean by that is you understand the wealthy actually aren't harmed by that. In fact, what you're seeing is their assets are actually going up in value. In fact, they're getting wealthier because they're not borrowing money. They're not borrowing money at the higher rates. And yet what we see is the middle and the lower class who actually have to borrow money, who have to use their credit cards, they're the ones actually footing the bill and paying the price and feeling the pain of those higher interest rates. So yeah, this is an interesting time. And by the way, it is not sustainable. Yeah, it does feel a little bit like we're kind of holding the water back with a dam, Bruce, that has a number of cracks in it, right? You mentioned consumer spending staying high, but we know that that's also coupled with the lowest personal savings rate we've ever seen at the same time, right? You mentioned the use of credit cards, and and, and these are cracks in a dam of holding back a bigger problem, potentially. And I think that's what a lot of folks in the economy are a little nervous around, right? Even if they're not predicting some sort of dam break, they're certainly nervous around some of these indicators that they're seeing. That puts people on pins and needles and certainly has our government with a trickier task at hand, which is getting control of both the river itself with whatever dam they're building and inflation, of course, through some of the cost of money. So it it is going to be something we're going to continue to watch very, very carefully because the ramifications are potentially huge. Well, that's the news you need to know. Don't miss this Friday's Northern Lights episode, where we'll interview Luke Brown with Keller Williams Coeur d'Alene in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Thanks again for tuning in with us on The Real Look. This podcast is produced by Marissa Frost. Visit kwnwr.com to access the show notes from today's episode. Head over to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe to The Real Look. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with a breakdown of all things real estate.